Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, we're talking to Siren Nagakiri, who is a longtime disabled activist and a community builder. Siren is also the founder of Disabled Hikers. When I learned about Disabled Hikers, I was in awe of the resources and support system that was being provided for the disabled community because they're often forgotten or an afterthought in our able-bodied dominated society. So it was really refreshing to see such an initiative. Siren has found solace in nature since they were a child, but it wasn't until their teens or early 20s that they really started exploring what their body could and could not do in the outdoors. Having multiple invisible disabilities and the lack of infrastructure for the disabled community made it difficult for Siren to enjoy nature the way they wanted. And even though Siren typically spent hours researching before hitting the trail, it didn't solve the problem because often the information about accessibility in the parks is not accurate. So after many such stressful and disappointing hiking experiences, Siren took it upon themselves to develop detailed trail guides, of which there are currently 11 written by Siren, and most of these are destinations in the Pacific Northwest. We talk about how they go about creating those guides and some of the principles that they use. Other discussion topics we cover are around how ableism negatively impacts the well-being of the disabled community. We also talk about how folks in the disabled community need to recognize some of the power and privileges they have, especially white disabled people, and how queer, trans, Black, Indigenous, and people of color in the disabled community are often marginalized. So many insightful conversations, even one around inspiration porn. I won't say what it is because I want you to listen to the conversation because context matters. Finally, it's important to know that before I recorded the session with Siren, I had a pre-interview where I clarified how they identify and the terms they prefer to use during the interview. I am sharing this because as we aim to be a more inclusive community, and as I am learning these protocols and preferences, I'm trying to implement them in the most respectful way that I know. I am not perfect, and in fact, none of us are. But I am trying to recognize and overcome my own biases so that I can be a better person to all. I love this conversation with Siren Nagakiri, and I hope you do too. Let me know what you think. As with this or other podcast episodes, you can reach out to me on Instagram at breaking underscore green underscore ceilings or email me at sapna, S-A-P-N-A, at watersavvysolutions.com. That's W-A-T-E-R-S-A-V-V-Y-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S.com. I hope you enjoy this. So yeah, if you can tell us how you developed a passion for the natural environment. It started for me pretty early as a kid. And because I was a sick and disabled kid, I couldn't like do a lot of real active stuff that kids my age were doing. So I did a lot of just like spending time in my yard and noticing the plants and the birds and the trees that were all around me and 
I would sit out on the porch at night and just gaze at the moon and do things like that. And I feel like that really kind of instilled in me an appreciation for nature. And then as I grew up and grew older and you know started to learn more about the natural world and all the different things that we roll into that and that are rolled into that, it kind of stimulated my passion more too. And then as I wanted to start exploring outdoor recreation more and had a really difficult time finding groups and resources that met my needs and just kind of really started learning more about how people are excluded from the outdoors and how that felt just really wrong to me. Nature is all around us and within us and we should be able to access it at any time. Yeah. As you were telling that story, I could totally imagine you in your yard as a little kid, just observing <laughs> nature. I was like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> we had mostly concrete in our backyard <laughs> growing up and observing nature in our backyard. It was just so, I guess it's nothing that really struck me when I was a kid, but observing nature, I think, happened more when we would go into the national parks mm-hmm. and we would have a guide who would tell us about the ecosystem or our teachers. And I think that's when it just made a little bit more, or it had a more of a connection for me, at least as the educators there. So you mentioned earlier on that you grew up disabled and we've had a conversation previously to our interview about just out of respect for your identity as to what you identify as. And the standard practice that I'm familiar with is we talk about people with disabilities to use the person first language. So a person with a disability is what I've been taught is preferred to a disabled person. So when I came across disabled hikers, I was like, oh, she's using or they're using disability first. So I think this is a really important conversation that we need to have in our community, especially able-bodied people who may not be aware or feel like, I don't know, what's the PC word? So here, let's educate them on what is your personal perspective on your identity, bearing in mind that each individual does identify differently. And so we need to ask a person when it's appropriate. And people can Google when that's appropriate <laughs> to ask. Yeah, definitely. In this case, it is. <laughs> yeah, I definitely prefer identity first language, which is disabled person or, or even person who has a disability, something like that. And for me, that's largely because I feel like we don't go around saying person without a disability or person who is non-disabled. So For me, my disability is really central to who I am and how I interact and show up with the world. So separating that from my identity feels really inauthentic to me. And it feels like it makes it easier for people to ignore that part of my identity. But, you know, again, like you said, it's really important to acknowledge how individuals prefer to to be referred to and what terms they prefer. So So through your journey of having multiple invisible disabilities, what has been the most rewarding and challenging aspect of this one identity of your being? For me, one of the most rewarding things has been, I think, my process of coming to understand my own value in a different way. As someone with multiple invisible disabilities and chronic illnesses, it's really easy to feel like you don't have a valuable place in our culture because it's so focused on productivity and doing and being out there. And that's not always something that I can do. 
So again, that kind of leads into one of the most challenging things, I think. And that is, you know, as someone whose disabilities are primarily invisible is, you know, A, people look at me and they assume, you know, I'm not disabled. They assume I'm able-bodied. I have no, have no physical or mental problems. And they make an assumption based on that. So when I say that I can't do this or that, then they just assume I'm lazy or I'm making excuses or I want special treatment. And that's not true at all. So that's definitely a difficult thing to walk when you're having a visible silly. Gosh, I can only imagine what that feels like, where it may feel like you're getting judgment for, like you said, looking like you're lazy or whatever. How do you overcome that? How do you say, all right, you know, I need to stand up for myself and just, I'm tired. And I'm going to tell whoever is asking something of me that I'll do it, but I'm tired right now. I mean, how do you do that? It's hard. And there are definitely times it's a weighted process, right? Like I have to really decide, like, is it going to be worth me advocating for myself in this position or will it just be easier to just do it and pay my own price later? And sometimes I do make that decision. I say, all right, I'm just going to do this and avoid the conflict and I'll spend the next week lying in bed. <laughs> yeah. This is something I've been thinking about in terms of how to make working relationships more inclusive and empathetic to the people, especially like in the workplace. You don't necessarily want to share that with your supervisor or your colleagues. So, I really sympathize with how difficult making that decision one can be and two, even expressing that. So for you, it's you determine if you feel comfortable enough to tell the person that you're working with and then also if it's worth the conflict or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if it's going to be worth the cost to my body later. There's several factors that kind of go into the equation there. (laughs) Right, right. So how do you listen to your body and what your body needs at a particular time? Yeah, that's definitely has been a lifelong process. I'm not sure I can really summarize it. I've definitely, it's a skill that I've had to develop for sure because our culture is so focused on us not paying attention to our bodies. It's not a skill that a lot of us develop. So for me, it's really a process of trying to just be quiet and non-judgmental with myself and accept how my body is feeling. And, you know, just exploring that every morning, you know, I'll kind of wake up and say, how am I feeling? What's my body experiencing in this moment, today, hour to hour, and just try to check in with myself regularly and then adapt my day as I do that. One of the reasons I can't work a quote unquote normal job is because I have to be really flexible and adaptive with my day to accommodate my body's needs. Yeah, I think that's such a good practice in general for anyone is when you wake up, you kind of are present in that moment and ask yourself, how do you feel and what can you get done today? And I really wish that our culture can evolve to being more inward looking. But yeah, I find like with the cultures that I've grown up in, it's always been like productivity. You got to be productive all the time and you got to like churn stuff out. And that's the measure of your worth. And I'm learning 
very late in my life, then that's not necessarily true. And sometimes people will say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I'm like, oh, that's so like... <laughs> You'll get there a lot faster. <laughs> You'll get there a lot <laughs> That's such a good response. You'll get there a lot faster. As I've evolved, and my perspective is like a work ethic. I was like, yeah, yeah, you will sleep when we're dead, of course. And I'm just like, hell no, nah, I can't do that. <laughs> That's for you, not for me. But yeah, it's really a skill that one has to learn. Sometimes you don't even like fully master it. I feel it's really hard. So we're here to talk about primarily your endeavor with disabled hikers. And as I've done research on you, like (laughs) the stalker that I am, (laughs) I read a really awesome article about your story. I think it was from Mm outside.com. And in that article, you said that I hear a lot of the only disability in life is a bad attitude. And that is just not true. The only disability in life is a society that is inherently ableist in an accessible world. Mm-hmm. I love that quote. And <laughs> it really spoke to me. And I was hoping that you would expound to us or share with us what you meant by that. Yeah. There's several models of disability, and one is the social model of disability, which kind of means that people are disabled by the social factors that surround them. So by the culture and the built environment and all that that surrounds us every day. So so many of the things that make disability a quote-unquote bad thing are things that are created by the world around us. And if those barriers and mindsets and things were moved and changed, then the things that make disability bad wouldn't apply anymore. So I very much believe that being disabled is not inherently a bad thing. It just means we experience the world differently sometimes. And in my mind, that's, that's a good thing. We need people who have a variety of ways of experiencing the world. So what makes the world inaccessible to me is the way that other people approach disability, the way that the built environment is created that makes it physically inaccessible, the mindsets that people have around disability that doesn't include us and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of treating disability as a social phenomenon. It's a socially constructed reality that has been perpetuated by abled people. And I honestly didn't realize like from the aspect of it being socially constructed. For me, that was just an aha moment. I was like, of course, if society didn't make this a thing, like disability a thing, then it wouldn't be. But the focus then would be more on, like you said, each individual has different experiences. But I also think the way And correct me if I'm wrong, is the way society has created this persona of like disability is like it's doom and gloom when it's not true at all. And through some of my research, I did find that there was a survey, I can't remember from where, so you can tell me if it's BS or not. But this report found that people with disabilities reported to have a good quality of life and sometimes even better than able-bodied people because it's just a mindset, like you said. Yeah, for a lot of people, being disabled is 
literally the worst thing that you can be. And that's just such BS. Mm -hmm. And that it really feeds into a lot of ableism, you know, feeds into ageism. And that's really the basis for why a lot of people ignore the disability community because it is the worst thing you can be. And it's something that anyone can become at any time. Yeah. It reminded me of something very inappropriate that a colleague once said is, Mm -hmm. I would hate to be blind. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you just said that. And she said it so casually. Yeah. But, you know, that moment stuck with me where I was like, gosh, you have no idea. And it's kind of insensitive for you to say something like that. Mm-hmm. Just automatically assuming that that's like the worst thing that could happen to an individual. But that also then kind of feeds into another term that you've coined, which is inspiration porn. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't coin it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it was actually... You're the promoter coined, of that. <laughs> <laughs> you promote that word. It's a great term, yeah. I love yeah. it. Yeah, Stella Young was the one that coined it. Stella Young, okay. Yeah, yeah and there's a lot online about her and her work and... Yeah, descriptions about inspiration porn. So, yeah. So, tell us what is inspiration porn and (laughs) why is it problematic? (laughs) Yeah. So, inspiration porn is basically using experiences that disabled people have. And it's often just very basic, everyday things that anyone would do in the course of their life. And which, if a non disabled person did it, it would be completely unremarkable. But because a disabled person did it, now it's this amazing, inspiring thing that inspires everyone who is not disabled to go out and live their best life and conquer their dreams and all this other stuff. So a lot of people feel like it's just holding up disabled people as inspiring and motivational. But really what it does is further illustrates the ableist idea that disabled people aren't capable of doing everyday daily things and so if they do it's remarkable and because disabled is the worst thing that you can be then anything that you accomplish is amazing Mm -hmm. when i first heard that term in our first conversation it just took me back to all of the videos that i've seen of like disabled people doing quote-unquote amazing things so there was this one video of this lady who is in crossfit Sorry, I don't know the term here, but she didn't have like her lower arms and her lower legs. And the interviewer, like, you know, in those videos where they cut out the questions that the interviewer asks, and I'm sure they asked them something about like, isn't this amazing that you're able to like do CrossFit even though you don't have your arms? And her response was like, I'm just a normal person. And that for me is an example of inspiration porn, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I would definitely consider that, yeah, inspiration porn, or at least them, yeah, inspired by inspiration porn. (laughs) Yeah, it's just like, look at this disabled lady. She can do CrossFit, so you can do CrossFit too. (laughs) Yeah, if she can do it, and it's the worst thing that you could possibly be, then there's no excuse for you not to. No excuse for you not to. Well. That will stay with me. Sorry. I just had to like pause for a moment. (laughs) A lot of things stay with me. (laughs) So we 
we want to talk about the inception of disabled hikers. When I first got in, on Instagram, like a few months back, <laughs> my secret is out. <laughs> I came across disabled hikers and I was like, this is an amazing initiative. And I had you on like my early list of people that I need to like interview once I can gather up the courage to ask them. <laughs> Because I was so impressed by like the community that you've been able to create. And so what inspired you to start Disabled Hikers? Yeah, like I said, I was really in love with nature and being in the outdoors. And as I was trying to explore more outdoor recreation opportunities, I wasn't finding anything that met my needs. And that just kind of stayed constant for my entire adulthood, 15 years or so. And I was just constantly running up against groups that weren't accessible to me or didn't understand my needs. There was no resources available that provided the information that I needed. So I lived in North Carolina and I was in an herbal education program to learn about herbs and plants and how to identify plants and things like that. And there were several times we'd go out for a hike or a plant walk and I wasn't really feeling up to being outdoors or going for a long hike, but it was required as part of the curriculum. and there just wasn't a lot of ways for me to really make it accessible for my body. So that was really frustrating, particularly because herbal medicine is something that sick and disabled people definitely should have access to. And it's a great way to learn about the natural world and how to connect with plants and things like that. So from there, that really kind of inspired kind of my new hiking life. And I started exploring the outdoors more and was just continuing to be really frustrated. And then I moved out west in 2017. I moved to Washington State and it's a beautiful area. There's lots of hiking opportunities and there's lots of information available in Washington State about trails, largely because of some trail associations and things like that that are available who provide resources. I still just wasn't finding any of the information that I needed to know whether a trail was going to be accessible to me. And one day in particular in March of 2018, I was out for a hike at a trail system that I had already been on a couple of times and was fairly familiar with, but I was going to try a new segment of it and immediately encountered like multiple barriers and really steep areas and some sharp drop-offs and things like that that wasn't listed in any of the guides I read anywhere. And I had done tons of research before. So I'm on this trail, like it would be just as hard for me to turn back and try to go back to the car as it would for me to just continue and finish the trail. Mm -hmm. So I continued on and finally made my way to this beautiful waterfall, like that was flowing through this gorgeous cavern and a bridge over it. And I just stopped there for a few minutes trying to rest. And immediately just kind of a light bulb went off. And I said, this is ridiculous. Like I'm tired of going through this. You know, why don't I do something? So I basically went home and kind of floated the idea to some friends and they were really excited about it. So I just kind of threw up a website and called it Disabled Hikers and said, okay, I'm going to write trail guides and build some community and do some advocacy work. And it just kind of took off from there. Mm. The part where you said, why don't I do something about it? I said that to myself so many times that I don't do anything. <laughs> it's like, I should do something about this. And then, then I, take, I sleep on it and then I forget. So even though I'm like very passionate about it, but you're just like, 
I'm going to do something about it. And you did. And I think that's so inspiring because for me, I'm just like (laughs) very distracted all the time. So you mentioned there were some things that you needed in order for you to do the hikes. What did you need? Really clear information beforehand about what the trail was going to be like, how long we were going to be going, when would we be able to rest? Would there be any support there if I needed help? Would anyone be able to carry my supplies? Things like that. Mm -hmm. And would that also include terrain? Because you mentioned steepness and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, how steep the trail would be, like what material the trail would be made out of, how many obstacles there would be. It's going to be like really up and down or if it's just like a solid elevation gain, things like that. Yeah, that's really cool. So you're sort of creating the way I'm seeing it in my mind. And I'm not saying that's what your guide is, but it's sort of like one of those elevation maps, you know, with the waves on them, but for a trail. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And so how many trail guides have you completed so far? At least two dozen, I think. Wow. And this is in the Washington area? Washington, Oregon, California. Yeah, there's a few all over. And that doesn't include also the trail guide book that I'm in the process of writing. And that's going to be 60 trails throughout all of Western Washington and Western Oregon. And it's also going to include like scenic drives and wheelchair accessible trails and a variety of trails for people with different mobility needs. and also include information on signage and braille opportunities and audio description and things like that. Mm -hmm. Are you looking to perhaps expand the reach of mapping the trail guides beyond the Northwest region? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I accept trail guides from anyone, anywhere. Mm. So if a trail or a park or something that they really love and they want to write about it, then you know, I'm happy to work with them on that. Yeah, that's really cool. It's needed. So through your journey at Disabled Hikers, what is a project that you've been most proud of or that you're most proud of? Sorry. Probably the guidebook. That just kind of happened out of the blue. And it was something I wanted to do, but I figured it would happen further down the road. So you know, I'm really excited about that and about the opportunity it's going to create for more disabled people in the outdoors. and. You know, kind of sets a precedent for disabled hikers to write guides in the publishing industry, which is so needed. Mm-hmm. The few books that do exist are either really old or they're only focused on wheelchair accessible trails or they're not written by disabled people. Interesting. So you mentioned that you thought this project was something that would happen later down the line. What brought it to the front line? <laughs> <laughs> well, I had kind of slowly been working on a book proposal that I was going to submit to a couple of publishers at some point. But following, I think it was probably the Outside Online article, an editor from Falcon Guide contacted me and said that they were super interested and to just send them my proposal that I had and take it from there. And Yeah. Super cool. I love the way things in the universe just unravel on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So the guidebook, how many trails will you be covering? What does that entail? Do you have to travel to those places? Mm -hmm. And do you have like a team of 
mappers following you <laughs> what does it look like <laughs> I'm just imagining you in like in khakis and you know the safari hats and just like with a notepad <laughs> just like scribbling things on the notepad <laughs> with like elevations and tripods I'm curious it's not too far from the truth yeah <laughs> okay cool <laughs> yeah yeah so it's gonna be 60 outdoor adventures because it's going to be partly scenic drives and then it'll also include wheelchair accessible trails and a variety of trails for all kinds of abilities and difficulty levels but they're all going to be what any other guide would typically classify as quote-unquote easy but they'll be kind of rated according to my own spoon theory rating system you know and some other resources that are out there so I'll be traveling basically all of Western Washington and Western Oregon and assessing well over 60 trails because I want to make sure the ones that I'm including are the right ones. And my plan is, you know, to go out for, you know, probably 7 to 10 or 14 days at a time and hike and travel and then go home so I can rest for a little while and go back out again. And it'll pretty much just be me out there doing this. I have a couple of people who have offered some help, you know, help taking photos and kind of support with supplies and things like that. But other than that, it's just mostly going to be me out there for the next year. I'm just going to be hiking and riding and resting and that'll be just about it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was going to ask you how long that's going to take a year. Wow. But you'll have some pretty amazing like nature porn shots on <laughs> your Instagram, right? <laughs> Yeah. Haha. <laughs> I'll have one <laughs> <Yeah>. for the gram. <laughs> I show weights. I show weights. That's really cool. And I'm so happy for you and for your community. That's amazing. So you mentioned something about you use a spoon theory. What is that? Yeah. So spoon theory was created by Christina Nisarondo, and I'm probably mispronouncing her last name. But basically, it's kind of a metaphor to indicate the reduced amount of energy that people who are disabled or have a chronic illness have every day. So the story, and you know, people can Google this, but it was basically her talking with a friend saying, okay, so if I start my day with eight spoons, then showering, getting dressed takes two spoons. Going to work all day takes four spoons. Going home and cooking dinner takes another spoon. So I don't have anything left over at the end of the day to do anything else but care for my basic needs. So that is kind of the the basis that I use to kind of describe the difficulty levels for the trails to kind of account for the amount of energy that someone may have to expend to do this trail and also kind of how rejuvenating it may be once you're there or you know if you get to this beautiful view or something like that. Because another concept of spoon theory is that People can replenish their spoons, but it may take a long time. So if you kind of burn through all your spoons one day, it may take two days to kind of recharge. Mm, interesting. It's sort of like a video game where you have lives. Yeah, a little heart. heart yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that may be a better metaphor. <laughs> no, no, no. The spoon totally works. I like the spoon theory better. It makes it unique, right? Unique to the to the situation. Yeah, <laughs> we'll stick to spoons. But that's just what I thought of. <laughs> yeah. Some people don't like the spoon theory. Oh, why is that? 
they feel like it's maybe a little too abstract or doesn't directly apply or is a little too limiting. So a lot of people use like, you know, the idea of like a battery being charged or uncharged or things mm. like that. Okay. Okay. So when I think of a park being accessible, the things that I've observed are just so far from my memory are just like wheelchair access. And then when preparing for a hike and they tell you the level of difficulty, but they don't necessarily tell you the type of the trail, which is what you're going to be including now in, in your guides. What makes a trail effectively accessible? Well, that is going to really vary depending on who's using it. The accessibility needs vary a lot. Sometimes they conflict. So when we say something is accessible, we have to really explain what that actually means because just saying something is accessible is kind of meaningless. Right. So like a degree of accessibility then? Well, more like the specific factors that are accessible. So if something is paved, of course, for wheelchair use, if there are barriers at sitting height, if there's braille access, audio description access, if there's a lot of barriers in the trail or like roots over an inch or two high in the trail, if it's really rocky, slippery, if there's boardwalks, all of that stuff really goes into whether or not a trail is going to be accessible for someone. Mm, okay. I read an article and I can't remember where, it's somewhere in my notes where the National Park Service, one of the parks was now making wheelchairs available to people who needed it. Is that typical or is that a new unique? It's pretty new. Yeah. There are more parks doing that now, which I think is pretty cool. And there's a lot of beaches that are providing like beach wheelchairs now, uh, which is really awesome because you can't go on a beach in a standard wheelchair. It's just not going to work. So especially beaches or they have like these kind of wheelchair track paths that you can lay down. Um, so stuff like that. Very cool. I'm going to have to look that up. But do you have a park that embodies the principles of, and I don't want to say making a park accessible because you just told me they're different and it just <laughs> depends. But is there a park that has kind of embodied or has taken into consideration these various factors of making the natural space accessible to people with various needs? Yeah, I, I can't say that there's any national park that I've been to that does like a really exceptional job at it. They all do some things some of the time, which is great. I was just recently in the Redwoods National Parks and Forests in Northern California, and they now have trail access information signs, which are technically being required in a lot of places that Right there at the trailhead, there will be a sign that gives like the elevation gain, the cross slope, the material of the trail, uh, and some other information like that so that people can decide right there whether it will be accessible to them. I live very close to, well, practically inside of Olympic National Park, and they have some places where they've like installed audio description and braille signs, uh, which is pretty cool. And I'm, and I'm working a lot with them on making things more accessible. So, you know, in my experience, parks are generally really open to making things more accessible. It's just a matter of how and how to fund it. That's the problem. How to fund it. Mm -hmm. The general idea is like, there's always a lack of funding, but is there like a specific reason in this case why there is a lack of funding? People just don't care enough, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> people don't care. 
Yeah, it's, that's a whole topic on its own, really. But there's Architectural Barriers Act, which requires all federally funded built environments to be accessible. And some of the things that are included in that act are now coming to the time where they're being required to be integrated and created. So some parks are doing work on that. And of course, the Americans with Disabilities Act is now 30 years old, and that applies to other environments, not always so much in the parks, but uh, some elements of that applies too. So, you know, the biggest problem I think is that these things become mandated by policy, but then they don't get funded or the government cuts funding to the national parks. So then they don't have the money to be able to do this. Oh, yeah. As you're explaining it, I was like, this is a far more complex problem. <laughs> uh, yeah, that where we could go into a rabbit hole, but I will refrain from that. <laughs> and I have a feeling it might make me angry too. So. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I really admire in your work is that you mentioned that part of your work is having to educate your community of disabled hikers about native land and indigenous people. Why is that important to you? Well, I mean, we are all recreating on stolen land, whether we're disabled or not. So I feel like it's really important to keep that at the forefront, especially anytime we're doing diversity and inclusion work because that's really kind of the foundational injustice that we're all standing on, sitting on. So acknowledging that is just the very least that I can do. And then, you know, if we really want to go even deeper into it, of course, there's a lot of intersections with white supremacy and colonialism and ableism, but all kind of works together to uphold this idea that some people and places are more valuable than others. and it's okay to extract the resources and energy from people. So then how do you put that principle into action when you are interacting with your group members on a hike, for example? Yeah, I always start the hikes with doing a land acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand and recognize that in Indigenous communities, there's a lot of pushback about that because a lot of people do that and then they stop there. So I acknowledge that sometimes that is the only thing that I can do and it's not enough. So, and then from there, I try to include a lot of Indigenous rights efforts in my advocacy work and share that with my community so that they are aware of the work that is being done. Yeah, because, I mean, to be honest, this practice of land acknowledgement is something that I only became familiar with, like back in February at a political ecology conference. And most people started off their presentations that way. And recently, I also heard what you said is some Indigenous peoples are against the land acknowledgement for the very reason that you mentioned. And that was also new to me. So it's like, oh my gosh, this is... Sorry, it's just me kind of like processing this information that I'm receiving really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also just being surprised that I didn't know about this, but also glad at the same time that I am now like purposely putting myself in these spaces where I'm learning about this stuff. And sometimes it's overwhelming, but I'd rather be overwhelmed than ignorant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is this my thinking? Yeah. So, you know, in the same conversation around diversity and inclusion, and tell me if this question is okay. We don't have to discuss it. It's just something that I, again, recently came across in a webinar. It's called Crip Camp, and it's based on the Netflix documentary. 
And in their launch webinar series, they had Maysoon Saeed, and she's a Palestinian Muslim. Well, she describes herself as a Palestinian Muslim virgin with cerebral palsy from New Jersey, who is an actress, comedian, and activist. (laughs) Close quote. (laughs) That's how she describes herself. And I have seen some of Maysoon's stand-ups in the past. So when I saw her on the webinar, I was like, is that really her? (laughs) So it was really cool to see that. And she said in that webinar that for her, she didn't really come into the discover the disability community until she was much older, like in her 30s or something of that sort. And then she went ahead to say that the disability community is so white and that the community needs to work on the racism and bigotry that seeps throughout so much of the community and the privilege that is often not addressed. So while I know that this is not your area or anything of that sort, I was just curious to know if this is something that you've observed too. And if so, how is it that you're addressing it within the disabled hikers community? And again, this is not a question that you should feel like you need to answer. I was just curious. Yeah, it's a really important question. And I'm a white person. So for me, much of that work involves addressing my own racism and bigotry. Because as a white person coming up in this country, of course, I was raised in a racist culture. So I have a lot of that ingrained in me, whether I like to think I don't or not. So examining that and addressing that is a big part of my work. And then also within Disabled Hikers itself, our mission is really building disability community and justice in the outdoors, but everywhere for disabled and all other marginalized people. So it's really important for me to lift up Black disabled individuals, Indigenous people, people of color with disabilities, and acknowledge that for a lot of folks, they don't always feel comfortable claiming their disability because disability is so connected with racism and with who becomes deserving as a human being. So I try to do a lot of work around sharing resources and amplifying those voices that are most impacted because I feel like within the white disability community, there's a tendency to kind of clutch onto our identity as disabled people and say, oh, look, I'm disabled. I experience all this oppression. And while that is absolutely true and life is very challenging for people who are disabled, as a white person, it's less challenging for me than it would be if I were a Black, Indigenous, or a person of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that I didn't think about, but we are still human beings at the end of the day, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, we're raised in communities that are like institutionalized racism within our workplaces and even in our cultures. And I will say that is also true in the South Asian community that I grew up in. So it just really brought to home that idea of, yes, it's just so pervasive. And I really appreciate that your work is intersectional in that aspect. And I have seen lately with the Black Lives Matter protests and all that's been kind of unraveling around us, you have acknowledged it and provided resources. And you've talked about particularly from the aspect of Black people with disabilities. So that's like another conversation that I got introduced to that, again, I didn't have access to that. Just didn't think about it like so many other things in this universe. (laughs) 
So thank you for sharing that. It was really enlightening. So as we're talking about ableism and we're talking about diversity and inclusion, what advice do you have for able-bodied people on how they can be more inclusive in their interaction with disabled people who may be their friends or people who they may come across on their hikes, exploring the outdoors? Oh, so many things. (laughs) (laughs) We will include those in the show notes. With bullet points. <laughs> I guess like the top five things that you see would really move the needle. Yeah. I think for one, recognizing that no one deserves access to anyone else's medical history or physical body or anything like that. So I am not required to tell someone what my disabilities are and how they impact me. It is up to them to believe me when I say I need X, Y, and Z. So listening to disabled people when they say, this is what we need without questioning us is really important. In the outdoor community in particular, there's a lot of kind of contextualizing outdoor recreation as you gotta go out there and conquer this mountain and defeat this trail and that kind of wording. And that A is really colonialist and is really ableist because then it kind of betrays us. The only valid way of being outdoors is to go do these really extreme adventures. And then again, the inspiration porn, which we talked about earlier, there's a lot of that shared in the outdoor community and it's really infuriating. So to stop using disabled people as inspiration to go live your best life is really important. And then to provide the kind of information that disabled people need which is part of the reason why I do this work. It's A, of course, to provide information and resources for disabled folks, but it's also so that non-disabled folks can see this is how you can do this. If you're leading your pikes or writing trail reviews or providing gear resources, this is information that you can provide. Yeah. And I would add to that is people should follow disabled hikers because you provide a lot of educational resources on how to be a more responsible human being and how you communicate with people from unique backgrounds. So yeah, educate yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going into the lightning round here where I ask you a series of four questions. And the first thing that comes to your mind, you can answer it. Okay. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? Most recently, the Crip Camp film documentary. It was Really amazing to see that on the big screen, as it were, and to see what has come out of that has been really inspiring. I feel like it really kind of started a new wave of disability revolution, and I'm excited where that goes. Okay. And that's on Netflix. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? My spiritual practice. I try to make time for that at least once every day. I have a a meditation practice and a spiritual practice that really helps me stay centered and focused and kind of clears out all the crap that gets into my head from doing this work all the time. So important for me. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I have another question. This might be a long Mm -hmm. question though. What's a, I guess, an overarching challenge that you face in your work? I don't know if this is a challenge or just a personal frustration. Maybe it's the same thing. But that even within the diversity, equity, and inclusion community, disability is still 
not really acknowledged and not discussed and not seen as a priority. Or if it is, it's just kind of tucked on. And there's not really any real work done about creating accessibility within the DEI community work. It's all the same thing. Like it's all connected with ableism and the world in general, but it also feels like another layer of kind of energy that I have to fight against. <laughs> hmm. And isn't that so sad? Because then it just becomes kind of like the opposite of DEI, right? <laughs> Which is not funny. It's just... I just laugh when I find things really ridiculous and yeah. offensive. I just laugh or cry. That's yes. the options. And... Yes. Well, thank you for sharing that because it's definitely something that I'm involved in the DEI community in Ohio. And I'm really impressed by the conversations that we have around disabled people, also around veterans. And that was just, again, so interesting and mind blowing. It's, Anyways, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole, but (laughs) what DI means, it's not just race and gender. It's so much more than that. Anyways, the next question is, what's the best piece of advice you've received? To value my own time and energy as much as I value everyone else's. Mm, That is a good one. Yes, yes, yes. What is your superpower? Probably... I don't know, this might be weird, but like understanding nuance, like I'm really good at like kind of seeing all the threads that weave into a problem and how they connect and how we have to like tease them out to really understand something. Mm, That is a superpower indeed. Again, I'm a very visual person. So as you were explaining that, I was just imagining sort of like these luminescent blue lines connecting and I don't know really bright lights coming out as they connect or something (laughs) like yeah anyways yeah that's how I was imagining your brain works like with these sparkly neurons just connecting and creating these amazing solutions yeah yeah all right well that was the end of the lightning round (laughs) 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 those are awesome answers and I almost went into a rabbit hole so (laughs) I survived. (laughs) All right. So how can we follow you on your journey? Uh, So I'm on Instagram at Disabled Hikers. Also Facebook at Disabled Hikers. We have a website, disabledhikers.com. And then I also have a Patreon page, which is a monthly subscription model where you can both support my work and get kind of behind the scenes look into what I'm doing, Mm. particularly as I'm writing the book. Very cool. Yes. All right. So then before we end our conversation here, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think that's it. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, 
keep breaking through those green ceilings. 